Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Dr. Tim Perry, the Dean of Providence Theological Seminary in Otterburn, Manitoba. Uh, his previous books are Benedict XVI, A Protestant Appreciation, and Mary for Evangelicals, Toward an Understanding of the Mother of Our Lord. His new book is Funerals for the Care of Souls. Welcome, Dr. Perry. Hi, Mark. Good to be with you. Uh, okay, now is there something in particular that has brought you to the topic of funerals after your previous books? Um, well, it kind of it was kind of accidental actually. Uh, in 2016, my father was diagnosed with uh, stage four colon cancer, and the diagnosis happened at a, a really auspicious moment in my professional life. My contract was up at the parish where I'd served as rector for five years. And uh, while uh, the parish and my bishop wanted me to stay, uh, it was an Anglican Church of Canada parish, um, my wife and I both independently of each other came to the conclusion that it was time to move on. And uh, we hadn't had much success in finding uh, what the next place would be. And so when we got the, the bombshell from my mom and dad, uh, we kind of took it as a sign that that's where we should be. So I spent the last uh, five years in the Ottawa area, um, largely helping my dad die and helping my mom uh, care for him and and uh, care for her after he died. Uh, so that's uh, the immediate cause. Um, while I was uh, in my hometown helping my dad, I was getting some part-time work at a local funeral home. And so uh, when uh, Todd Haynes at Lexham Press asked me if I wanted to write a uh, pastoral guide for funeral care, uh, I jumped at the chance to kind of put some thoughts that I'd been thinking about uh, on paper. And the result is this little book. Yeah. You note early on that this primer on funerals was unnecessary when you were a child. Why is it necessary now? Uh, I think because of the demise of, of you know, an, an accepted Christian culture that uh, trusted in, relied on uh, churches to take people through the uh, stages of life through the rites of passage. Um, so when, you know, when I was a kid, I mentioned in the introduction, um, a book like the one I've written really didn't need to be written because everybody knew what to do already. Uh, even if people didn't go to church, there was some kind of church connection. There was some kind of collective cultural memory yeah. uh, that kind of kicked in, you know, when when uh, not only when people died, but when uh, when children were born, when uh, adolescents became adults, when they married, 
when they had kids of their own, when they died. There were markers that churches could be counted on to deliver. And uh, everybody knew uh, basically what their roles were for those markers. And I just don't think that's true anymore. Um, it's, it's, I mean, the most obvious case, and I mentioned this in the book in a couple of places, is with the wedding, how they've become completely consumerized. And there's, yeah. there's nothing more to a marriage than simply, you know, sanctifying one couple's desire for each other. Yeah. I think the same is true in, in funerals. There's no collective memory about what to do. And, and this is particularly odd for, uh, for Christians, um, because Christians have a peculiar way to die that's inscribed by our scriptures, by our practices. And uh, I'd like to think the book is kind of calling Christian leaders back to that memory. They have some, some catechizing work to do with their people. You have actually some evocative descriptions of a church, right? A, a church in place, in a neighborhood, it really you, you you could look at that church and see the full scope of your own life mm-hmm. somehow okay you're 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 baptized there you you go into the church you 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 there are different you know as you say certain rituals marriage and all the way to the graveyard there yep. in that church and that people could actually see this material embodiment in place that would sort of guide and I don't know if oversee is the right word, but give, uh, I mean, be a guardian for your life yeah. from beginning yeah. to end. And that's such a, uh, uh, Dr. Tim, that, that's such a wonderful thing. Why would we want to give this up? <laughs> uh, that, that question is above my pay grade. Mark. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know, uh, and I and I am uh, unapologetically uh, old-fashioned to the point of being reactionary uh, on that point, and that probably comes through in the book too. Um, sociologically, churches have filled a very important role in our life together until, you know, culturally speaking, the day before yesterday, and. Uh, yeah. It, it, it remains to be seen, at least for me, that what is beginning to replace them is uh, uh, contributes uh, anything of significance to human flourishing. Um, certainly, I think churches gave us a sense of place, a sense of, of rootedness. And uh, it's a real challenge for churches going forward when, you know, the whole culture seems to have been deracinated. It's had its, its roots, you know, just cut away. Uh, for the sake of, you know, the endless cycle of self-construction based on how much money you can earn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a what a burden, <laughs> I would say. Uh, you 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 have a, a little anecdote in the beginning of a funeral that you attended in Sudbury, uh, yeah. over which you presided early in your ministry. What what happened at that funeral? Well, the, the funeral was for the matriarch of a, uh, a, a long-established parish family. And, you know, like many Episcopalian and Anglican churches, and I expect Catholic churches as well, um, there are very few attendees from the long-established parish family who actually came to the church. Uh, and so, um, you know, when she died... She was well known to my uh, admin assistant because she'd been such a fixture at the church for decades, but I'd never met any of them. 
and so I, I went off to the family home to um, go through the service, talk about scripture readings, talk about hymns, and, and the sorts of usual things that a, a pastor from any denomination would do with uh, with a family who that did have some kind of connection to their to their church. And uh, in the middle of that service, as we were working through the liturgy, I, I looked at you know the, the front pew. Um, expecting to see the kind of the usual range of emotions and what I saw instead was straightforward bafflement. Hmm. Uh, this lady's grandchildren had no idea what was going on. Uh, hmm. they, they had been uh, successfully de-churched and, uh, and I was really, really surprised by that just because of the family's connection to the parish. Um, and, uh, and that, really convinced me uh, upon, you know, reflection later when Todd asked me, that story came immediately to mind as, as kind of the catalyzing story. This is, this is why this little book needs to be written. You link this uh, deterioration to uh, a bigger, you know, conceptual trend, and that is uh, what happened with eschatology in the 20th mm -hmm. century. What went on there? Uh, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's a twofold story, and it's a little bit ironic. I think, on the one hand, the church lost its eschatological vocabulary. Uh, in, the, in the mainstream Protestant churches, and perhaps in the Catholic Church, uh, uh, more immediate concerns came to the fore. Um, keeping the machine going in the... Uh, in the days of decreasing revenues, decreasing membership roles. Um, in the churches that, that I've been shaped in as, as a child, um, I think we became a little bit embarrassed at our eschatological excesses, uh, where you know we stopped talking about the traditional last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven, and started talking instead about secret rapture, great tribulation, Who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? Uh, and I, I think, you know, evangelicals have perhaps rightly uh, become a little bit embarrassed at that kind of speech. Uh, but instead of going back to the far richer and far more important language of the traditional last things, uh, we've just stopped talking about eschatology altogether. Yeah. So I think for a variety of reasons, churches have forgotten their eschatological language. At the same time, Popular culture is awash in eschatological and apocalyptic imagery. Yeah. Uh, you know, you think of like pop culture zombie movies. Yeah. Um, uh, the whole vocabulary of climate extinction rebellion. Um, you know, the earth is going to die unless we do something right this instant. Uh, you can be, as, as I am, uh, concerned about you know, climate change and global warming and all that stuff uh, without um, buying into kind of the, the extreme doomsday prophetic overtones that, that some folks are, are, are embracing. And uh, it, it looks like, um, you know, the, the popular Western culture is embracing apocalyptic and eschatological imagery in the demise of liberalism precisely at the time that churches have forgotten how to talk about the end altogether. Yeah.
and, and, and that's that's a, an irony to me that I think speaks it speaks into again the need for this this little book being written. Why don't the church leaders establish a more standardized funeral service? If if there's going to be a funeral in this church, this is going to be the liturgy for it. Period. That's a great question. <laughs> And, and, and you know you've you've read the book, so you know my my plea uh, to uh, to churches. You know this is if you, even if it's not your tradition to script a service, this is one service that should be scripted. And um, I, I was quite fortunate to spend my professional ministry career in the Anglican Church of Canada, um, where uh, there is a a tightly scripted and I think quite lovely. Uh, biblically rich, traditionally rooted funeral liturgy um, that has a, a you know a certain fixed nature to it that is is good, uh, and that the task is not to tinker with the liturgy to help people feel better, but to teach people so that when the time comes to have the liturgy, they know what's going on. And I, I get the challenge that comes with uh, dechurched families, with unchurched families, with emergency calls. Uh, and, and, and those challenges are real, but we, we can't use those challenges as a reason to neglect, and here I'm talking to pastors and priests, to neglect the people under our care who need to be taught um, traditional Christian eschatology so that when the funeral comes, uh, they know what's happening. Uh, they, they know why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. You actually note that a lot of funerals have lost their Christological focus. Uh, how do you handle a family who just goes too secular on this? Well, sometimes there's there's nothing you can do. Mm. And uh, one thing that that pastors and priests perhaps can recover is uh, a certain level of honesty. Uh, when when dealing with families and and that's that's happened to me uh, a couple of times and it, it, it can be handled I think reasonably well I was uh, put in contact with a family whose uh, the the pater familias had had died and and I was the on-call clergy so I was sent to them and uh, in the course of our conversation it became really clear that they they did not want anything remotely religious, let alone, you know, Christian, uh, at the memorial service. But, but their, their father. But the father, Sorry, the father would have wanted that, right? Well, I, I don't I, know because I didn't. I didn't know the man. Okay. I had no connection to the family at all, and uh, the the uh, the uh, spouse and children certainly didn't. And so at at you know about half an hour into our conversation with their obvious increasing discomfort, I, I simply decided to kind of lance the boil and say, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian clergyman and I don't know your family. It feels to me like what I can do for you is not what you need or want. Is that accurate? And they said it was. And and so, you know, I I agreed to help find them someone who'd be better able to to give them what they were looking for, and we, you know, we parted in such a way that I was able to have dealings with this family, you know, a couple of years down the road without uh, any ill will. Uh, so it, 
it worked out well. But I think one thing clergy can do is is simply be honest about what they can and cannot provide, uh, and to be unapologetically Christian in you know just what it is they can offer to a grieving family, whether that family is you know churched, dechurched, unchurched, whatever. Uh, so you know, start with a certain amount of security in your in your own identity as a believer in Jesus. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you say that North Americans, most North Americans, don't even have the vocabulary to talk about death anymore. Have you tried, and should other ministers, priests, try to introduce that vocabulary into the weekly sermons? Yes. <laughs> yes, is the short answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the lectionaries uh, that, that most of your listeners will use uh, give us, as preachers, ample opportunity to talk about death, to talk about judgment, uh, to talk about heaven, to talk even about hell. Um, and, and there is definitely room in our preaching for um, recovering the, the classical language of eschatology. Um, if, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm convinced that a, a sermon ultimately addresses one of three questions. What can I know? What must I do? And what may I hope? You know, Kant's three questions. And um, my preaching, anyway, uh, has suffered from serious inattention to the third question. And, uh, you know, in part, writing the book has made me more sensitive to the need to addressing issues of death and eternal life, uh, issues of what we might hope uh, beyond death, what resurrection means, what death is, what judgment involves. Um, absolutely. I think, I think it's part of a preacher's responsibility to bring those classic eschatological themes back into the Sunday morning sermon or homily. What is this thing in Canada called MAID, M-A-I-D? That is Medical Assistance in Dying, um, which is a wonderful, horrible euphemism. <laughs> it, it was originally, if I, my memory is correct, I, I'm pretty sure this is not an apocryphal story, it was originally going to be called Medical Assisted Death which has the advantages of both being more accurate and being the acronym MAD, uh, <laughs> because it is. That's euthanasia. Yeah. So it was changed to medical assistance in dying, uh, and um, it's been embraced with a peculiar ferocity in Canada. I mean, we, we really want to catch up to the Dutch and the Belgians in terms of uh, how many different... Uh, classes of people will have this medical service made available to them. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, it's a terrible thing. 
what are the main features of something far, far from made, uh, which you call, quote, the Christian way of death? Um, I think accepting death as an inevitable end. Uh, it's not something from which we should distract ourselves. Uh, it's not something which we should deny or try to avoid. Neither is it uh, something that we should embrace as, as a natural end. It's profoundly unnatural. It's, you know, the wages of sin. So however inevitable it is, it's, it's not natural. It's something from which we need to be uh, delivered. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the sting of which is, is removed by Christ uh, because he tasted death for all of us. And because he died and rose again, to quote Paul, he is Lord of both the dead and the living. Um, just to circle back to your question about, about Christology, this is, I think, the most important part of any Christian funeral, is holding forth to people the hope that comes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, when we short-circuit that kind of language for talking instead about, you know, extended family reunions over on the other side, uh, I think we're doing a disservice to our people. Yeah. Uh, your chapter four is entitled simply Hell. You say it mm -hmm. was difficult to to write. Have you spoken about hell in the funerals over which you've presided? I've not. And I'm not sure that that hell is 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 the right topic for a funeral homily, uh, but it's, it should be part of the, certainly, a pastor's formation, and, you know, if we're going to be uh, teaching our people, our congregations, our parishes about the last things, it's, it's going to be talked about to form their imaginations uh, as well. Um, but you know, it's also true that I don't talk a whole lot about heaven um, in a funeral homily either. Uh, I talk about Jesus yeah, uh, and, and the hope his resurrection provides. You don't um, want to get into God's judgment of the deceased. Not at all. Not at all. Not, not at all. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I certainly can uh, appreciate that other priests and ministers might come to different conclusions, um, but it's, it's my conviction that if Christ is the judge, who is not only the judge, but as Karl Barth describes him, you know, he's the judge judged in our place, then I am freed from having to judge anybody, including the person who's, you know, whose remains are in the urn or in the casket in front of me. Uh, and not only am I freed from that, but I can confidently entrust that judgment to him because he'll do a far better job than I will anyway. And so it's my job to commend that person in front of their family to the mercy of God, knowing that his justice will be merciful and infinitely more just than any human standard that we can set. Your next chapter is on heaven, called heaven. Yeah which clears up some popular misconceptions of what heaven is. What are, what are a couple of those misconceptions? 
Well, the one that, that I grew up with and the one that, I mean, to be perfectly honest, my heart still resonates with is, uh, you know, the family reunion. Um, I can remember, you know, Southern Gospel quartets coming through my my part of the country and saying things, you know, before they got to the tear-jerky last song of the concert, saying things like, heaven won't be heaven if all our friends won't be there. Hmm. Um, and, hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And, it, of course, there's a certain, you know, emotional pull to that. Uh, I loved my dad, and I can't imagine... Uh, being in the presence of the Lord in heaven and not being aware that he's also there. So I hope for a reunion. I absolutely do. Um, but that hoped-for reunion has, I think, come to displace more important themes like being united with Jesus, who is the source of our life, uh, whose life you know, obliterates death, such that death doesn't write the last word over any of us. Um, I think that's a far more important theme. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book about an, a really profound experience my wife had. Um, her mom died at a, a relatively young age from, from breast cancer, and uh, my wife Rachel often uh, would remember her mother and hope for heaven as a place where she would see her again. Um, later, when we had our own family, um, she began to think of heaven as a place where she would continue to, to know and be known by our kids. And it was as she was reading uh, The Great Divorce, uh, C.S. Lewis's wonderful little parable about the afterlife, uh, that she had a really uncomfortable question intrude into her imagination, and that was, why is union with Jesus not heaven enough? Mm-hmm. And that's a really good question that I think needs to just be left hanging in front of people, maybe a little regularly, because it, it clears up a lot of misconceptions, I think, that we might have about the afterlife. You talked about the consumerization of marriage, weddings, uh, mm -hmm. and you also talk about the consumerization of death. How, do, how does that happen? What are the features of the consumerization of death? Well, death has become, uh, well, maybe not death, but all that surrounds death has become a series of products that are bought and sold. Hmm. And in the buying and selling of those products, um, the grieving family is the consumer and their choices are paramount. So, you know, um, where... I think when, when you and I were both children, uh, if we were raised in church, we, we kind of knew if someone died, what funeral home we were going to, what church we were going to, what cemetery we were going to. Now, um, everything is up for grabs. Uh, which funeral home will you phone? Will you have a traditional funeral with a casket in a church? Will you go with cremation or with another means of dealing with the bodily remains of your loved one? Will you have a chapel service? Will you have a party in a pub? Will you have nothing at all? Um, every, everything is now down to the consumer to choose. And 
Um, in my own experience, it's a growing number of consumers who simply say, we want nothing. Uh, we'll take mom's ashes up to the lake. We will scatter them there and, and have a, a, you know, a family dinner. And that, and that will be it. And uh, just purely anthropologically, I mean, it, if human civilization is oriented around remembering the dead, and there are some anthropologists who are convinced that that's what begins human civilization, um, the fact that we, we've cut out those rites, we've cut out those means of remembering and of making sense of what's happened, for the sake of uh, a private meal at a remote location, I, I think that's that speaks to I think an impoverishment of our culture. You you say that a call for repentance should be part of a funeral. Do you Absolutely. do you worry that the the secular people in the audience will be turned off? Um, not if it's done well. No. No, there's there's always the need for tact and care, um, especially in situations where emotions are going to be raw and close to the surface. Um, but there there is is I don't think anything wrong with uh, soberly reflecting on the reality of our end and of the need to live in the light of that eventuality. You know, and, and what the call to repentance is going to look like is is going to differ depending on you know what kind of of funeral we're 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 planning. Um, so there, there's no way to you know kind of cookie cutter the call to repentance, but absolutely, it's it's a sober moment. Yeah, it's a thin place when eternity and time are really close to touching. That, that's what uh, you mean when you call a funeral a liminal experience, correct? Yes, absolutely. And and the preacher, you say, the minister, the priest, he he stands between somehow the living and the dead. He does. Yeah. Quite you know quite literally in in the case of the funeral, I think it's true every Sunday, um, but it's particularly true at the funeral. I mean, it's it's hard to dismiss the reality of death when. You know, there's a casket at the front of the church, or an urn at the front of the church, or in the chapel, or wherever. Um, it's it's there, and it it has to be addressed and talked about. There are consequences for the living um, that I think preachers fail in their duty if they don't mention. Yeah. The book is Funerals for the Care of Souls. Dr. Tim Perry, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.